And welcome to another edition of Digging In, Missouri Farm Bureau's podcast. I am your host for this week, uh, President Garrett Hawkins. And we are, tell you what, I always get excited every time I have the chance to, to host the podcast. But in this case, we get to do a little bit of a preview in advance of our 108th Missouri Farm Bureau annual meeting. And one of our keynote speakers this year is Mr. Ray Starling, someone that honestly I've looked up to since I was in in high school. So, Ray, I'm going to give a little bit about your background before you jump in and give the full story. But, you know, when I recount as an FFA member at Appleton City High School, I still remember going to National FFA Convention and seeing you uh, as the Eastern Region National Vice President. And you know, to see your career through the years, your roots in North Carolina and Missouri and North Carolina Farm Bureaus have always had such a strong, strong relationship through the years. And to see most recently your service in Washington, D.C., as special assistant to President Trump, as well as chief of staff to Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, and now being back home in North Carolina as general counsel for uh, the Chamber of Commerce. What a career and we could not be more excited to welcome you to the Missouri Farm Bureau annual meeting here in just a few days. That's great, Garrett. Thank you for that. And I could not be more excited about coming. I feel like I've got this kindred spirit with the people of Missouri. When I was a national officer, I actually spent out of that year, I spent five weeks in Missouri because obviously the week you get elected and then they make you stay around a few days. But then I did my experience state was uh, in Missouri. I came back and did one of these regional tours where they run you through like 3000 high schools in four days. And I mean, your tongue's hanging out, but Missouri knew how to leverage uh, national officers and put them to work. And so I got to do that. I think a couple of times went back for business and industry tours. And then of course, back when I was active in FFA, we still had the convention in Kansas city. So, you know, went out a week early for that and then had the convention. So uh, I feel like there's a lot of common denominators between Missouri and North Carolina. Partly, I think that's true politically. You know, the way your state is set up, you've got, you know, sort of urban areas in St. Louis and Kansas City on each end of the state. And then you've, you know, we're kind of like that with Raleigh and Charlotte, but still very balanced, I think, politically, you know, deep red and deep blue in different parts of the state. So, uh, so uh, good to be talking to you and good to be coming to, to speak to some Farm Bureau brethren. That's all right. Well, Ray, you know, just real quick back on the FFA side. So the last year the convention was in Kansas City was the year that I was a state FFA officer here in Missouri. And I do remember when you came to the state and did the tour around. It's always a big deal anytime uh, a national FFA officer visits your state. So I I remember those days fondly. Just Missouri, just, you know, a, a big rural population there. Uh, you have your act together in terms of FFA and generating young leaders. And I, I mean that sincerely. And when I think about kind of the atmosphere of ag and ag policy, you know, I think about those states that have it all. And so I think about a strong land grant university. And I mean, obviously, I think about Mizzou up in Columbia. And and I my, our good friend, Andrew McRae, drove me up there and I got to see the columns. I assume Absolutely. the columns are still standing, right? Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and you've sent stolen one of our favorite sons here, a guy named Marshall Stewart, uh, who, I'm, by the way, I'm bringing him back with me when I come out there in a couple of weeks. So Okay, no, wait. <laughs> we'll circle back to that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think about your land grant, I think about your farm bureau, I think about your production community and uh, certainly the background there in FFA and ag education and uh, just a just a wonderful, hospitable place. And 
you're, you're fortunate to be there. You really are. It's, it's a wonderful state and a, and a significant one when it comes to ag. Well, thank you for recognizing that, Ray. You know, it's pretty cool. I read right now that now that you are a new author, uh, you are the number one agriculture book on Amazon right now. And I'm excited that I think we may be the first stop in your book tour. As, no, that's exactly right. As you talk about farmers versus foodies. And I've got to ask, like, why on earth did you want to write a book? Like, wh what's led you yeah. to this point, Ray? Well, you're going to get me cranked up here. So I, I can definitely answer that question. So first of all, there was like this logical lull in life when we all went home for two weeks to slow the spread. You all remember? Now, Blake, uh, uh, your colleague, Blake, not your predecessor, Blake, is looking at me like, what is he talking about a lull? Because he was still at USDA uh, when a lot of that was happening. Uh, and they were definitely not in a lull. But for many of us, our employers sent us home and said, don't go out at night, don't go anywhere on the weekends. And partly I was like, well, what am I going to do with my time? And I have continued to be, and, and basically the theme of the book and the theme of my talk when I see you in a couple of weeks, is how do we have really smart people in our society that say things like the food system is broken? And at the same time, those of us in agriculture are like, you know, we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, we're amazing. You should you should really think about how awesome our industry is more. You should pay homage to what farmers and the agribusiness and ag allies sort of sector does. And how do those two different trains of thought, which are really pretty much opposite? I mean, there's not like, oh, we're actually closer together. With no, like there's a number of people that criticize the, the system and say it's broken. And we, of course, think it's great. And so how can these two things coexist at the same time? I really wanted to try to get to the bottom of that, try to figure out, you know, how, how does that happen? How, how, do, how is it that the Aggies are so proud of what we've got and, and are ready to defend it? And yet there's such a loud, I don't know how large it is, but there's certainly a loud, organized group of people on the other side that want to say the opposite. That just bugged me. I wanted to figure out why that was and, and, and unpeel that a little bit. So got motivated to write the book, put some of those thoughts down, do a lot of conversations with folks. And uh, it came together. It took about a year really to write it. It's a pretty well-researched book. I mean, it's got about 350 footnotes in it. Uh, and then it really took about another year to get to the point that we're at now. I mean, I sent the manuscript in on January 1st of this year and we're just now, December 1st, that's kind of the Amazon release date. Uh, so now it's kind of out in the public. So uh, it's, it's been a labor of love, but, uh, but something that I felt we needed to add to the conversation. I've got to ask, I mean, serving, you know, in the previous administration, I mean, what were the pivotal moments or was there one aha moment that led you to think, okay, the time is right to, to tackle this topic? Yeah. In fact, the opening chapter of the book talks about this meeting that I had in Secretary Purdue's office, you know, in this, I mean, the USDA and DC, we are one of the most fortunate agencies given our real estate. I mean, we're in this huge building. It's kind of cold in there in the summertime. Maybe it doesn't cool down quite that great in the, I'm sorry, cold in the wintertime, uh, hot in the summertime. It's an old building. There's no doubt about it. But there is this majesty about it. There are these high ceilings. And of course, I was right there in the secretary's office and kind of getting, you know, if there was a glamorous part of a, of a hundred year old building, we were in it. And I remember sitting at a table with the gentleman that represented at the time, it was called the grocery manufacturers. 
uh, I think they've changed their name, but it's basically companies that package and sell food into retail. You know, so anybody that was had a processed food product and beyond. I mean, there were some other, you know, dairy manufacturers and others that that were a part of this group. They had just gone through a big fight over GMO labeling on the legislative front, and they had a new CEO, and that CEO was coming in to meet the secretary, and it was supposed to be a very low key friendly, hey, let's have the secretary meet with the new CEO. It'll just be a meet and greet, kind of a connection, and then we'll talk about substance later. That's not what happened um, because the secretary and, and our staff had sort of talked ahead of time, like, what are our objectives for this meeting? What do we want to get out of this? I mean, the same kind of thing you probably do before any meeting you have now. What, what am I really trying to get at here? Why are we getting together? And partly we were like, we want their help, right? They're actually out there marketing and selling product to consumers. Consumers have some really weird ideas about what agriculture should look like. They ought to help us push back on those ideas. They ought to help us correct misgivings that consumers and the marketplace have, right? Like they're in a, they're in a unique place to help us with that. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, that was what we thought. Uh, when we sat down the meeting to say it did not go well would be quite the understatement. Uh, it, it was it was really like sandpaper rubbing, you know, against each other because the secretary was definitely on message on point. That That is what he wanted to get. He was like, I want you food manufacturers to help us, you know, push back against some of these unfounded consumer concerns and fears. And the person from the consumer products group was basically like, no. We're, we're not going to argue with our customers. We don't see it as our responsibility to correct their misgivings. Our members don't have time to argue with them, right? They've got three seconds when they're standing in front of our product in the grocery store aisle. We're not going to spend that three seconds explaining to them that GMOs will not kill them. If they want a GMO-free product, we're going to make sure the bag says very prominently, this is GMO-free. And so... You, you had that tension. And, and I say in the book, as I sat there and watched this unfold, which was, again, supposed to just be a friendly meeting, I saw the secretary's face get redder and redder and redder, <laughs> or more red, I guess. I don't know grammatically what is correct. And I saw the, the guy from the consumer products group at that time, the grocery manufacturers, I saw his face get more white and more white and more white because he knew he was in this meeting with a cabinet member. And it was go. It was like going down fast. And so, Miles. First of all, I was like, "Why did that happen? Like, why? Why are they not more willing to help us?" And over time, figured out that you know he really does represent the view of that industry. Now they care about agriculture. Uh, they definitely understand that consumers out there have some some crazy ideas, and that people are asking the food system for some odd things. But from their perspective, they got to make budget next quarter. I mean, it's a very competitive, uh, very you know tough process. And and what I my, my real takeaway there, and kind of how I end chapter one is that what was actually happening in that room was a fight over what consumers think about agriculture, and the consumers were not even in the room. Right? We were representing the farmer group. They were representing retailers and and food manufacturers that sell to consumers. But we didn't actually have anybody there speaking on behalf of consumers. And so if that kind of pressure could create that sort of setting in that meeting, 
what else can it influence in the food and farming sort of ecosphere, if you will? And, uh, you know, I was sort of amazed by that. I mean, I, I was, uh, I, and now I understand better. Of course, they don't want to argue with their customer. Of course, they don't want to shake their finger at their customer. They want them to stay their customer. Uh, so we cannot count. I, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, this story, Garrett, is there's no cavalry coming, right? Like we think in ag, oh, we got to have more partners over there that are going to help us with this. Well, I think, you know, generally that's true. We need to have as many friends as we can in this conversation, but the real onus is on us to sort out some of these challenges and push back against them. Nobody's going to do it for us. This is not something we can contract out. And um, so that, that kind of started. And then you should know one other thing about the book. When I originally conceived the idea, the title was going to be Farmers versus Foodies and why the foodies are going to win. And, and actually, a, a guy from Missouri who I've mentioned already, my good friend, Andrew McRae, was like, yeah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> like all the farmers mad. Maybe I shouldn't have said that on this podcast. right? But, <laughs> but so, A, he was right. Like, I didn't want to make my key audience members frustrated. So that was good advice. But the second thing is, in retrospect, and I figured this out before we went to press, that's also not true. right? Farmers versus foodies and why the foodies are going to win. That part it cannot be true. Uh, we have a moral obligation to make sure it doesn't come true. Um, and, and, and that's just, that's just kind of where my, that's a little, a little overview about how this thing right. came together here. I have to add, I mean, I'm fascinated. You cover a, a gamut. Uh, some of the chapter titles are just very intriguing. Was there, is there one chapter that you, that really stands out amongst all of them that you really enjoyed the most writing? Gosh, what a hard question. I mean, a guy that writes a book, he, there's like nine chapters that really stand out. So, uh, but I'll go with, I'll go with three. I know you said one, but I'll That's, try to, I'll try to give you one sentence on three different ones. Okay. I, the second chapter I call Ag Humpty Dumptyism. And it's just cataloging this notion that so many people, so many really smart people say that the system is completely broken. Like we've fallen off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men have got to put us back together again. So I, I think I love that. I mean, I, Obviously, I think it's funny, and I think it adequately characterizes what our critics are saying. Like we're we're, we're it's Humpty Dumpty, and he's fallen. I think the other two that I would sort of insist are extraordinarily important to the message, and I think we'll talk more about one of them. One of them is legal. I think we are absolutely getting um, defeated in in the legal apparatus of our three branches of government and the judicial branch of government, and then I think culture is is also adding to this this notion that the way we think about everything not just agriculture uh lends itself to a, a fertile soil if you will for the kind of thinking that is oh the ag system is broken and so a the humpty dumptyism b the legal world and c how culture culture uh and sort of our current anthropology is is very much fueling the capability of, of some of these bad ideas to take hold. Uh, hey. I think. Well, I want to I want to talk more about the legal side then. You know, when I think about my 20 years and kind of the Farm Bureau family, we've seen, you know, the ag groups step up in the legal arena. Heck, the Supreme Court's taken up two cases of right. ag this past fall. Where, where are we falling short, Ray? 
Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I clearly I'm with you on, wow, there are these cases at the Supreme Court, but, but you know, one of them, the wetlands case, and then the other, the Proposition 12 case out of California. But think about that Proposition 12 case. I mean, that, that came about because some animal activists, you know, got their act together and got that question on the ballot back in, what, 2019 or something like that, yeah. uh, and now have funded the legal defense of that effort uh, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And, and we may not win, right? Like we, it's, in fact, I, I think piecing together a five-person majority on that is going to require some very progressive judges to agree with some very conservative justices uh, on a path to get you to five. And so I, I don't think it's a slam dunk that we're going to win. And so, yes, you are correct. We are playing in some of those spaces. But if I were to show you, there's an organization, and we'll talk about this in December, there's an organization called Public Justice. You can go there to their website. You can click on a link that is essentially a how-to guide for how to sue farmers that are involved in intensive animal agriculture. There are organizations that have scholarships for law students who want to come fix all that's wrong in agriculture. There are clinics at Lewis and Clark, clinics at the Vermont Law School, clinics at Harvard Law School, where they are preparing young attorneys to come out and revolutionize agriculture through the legal realm. And so, A, I think we're falling behind on the lawyer preparation side. Uh, in fact, I would argue that some of the work coming out of some of our more traditional ag law programs is, is, is really different than it was 25 and 30 years ago. And, you know, still, still a lot of good stuff there, too. But, but I, I think, A, that's a missed opportunity in terms of educating the next generation of folks that will represent us. And then I think there's a mentality problem, Garrett. I think a lot of these activist groups are playing offense and we end up playing defense. I mean, really, the, the Proposition 12 case is a great example of defense. Yeah, I can't um, disagree. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've had those hog nuisance suits here in North Carolina. There's always sort of right to farm and nuisance stuff going around, around in some part of the country. That's typically ag community playing defense. Um, and, and so there's a mentality challenge because our detractors our attackers, if you will, they are nimble, they are well-funded, they are well-staffed, and they are aggressive. And so they're playing offense. And the key thing to keep in mind, they don't even care if they lose. In fact, when they do lose, and they lose a good amount, they will put out a press release that said something along, you know, well, we didn't win, the, you know, but we brought attention to the inhumane treatment of animals. And we got some discovery that taught us some things about industry practices and we built our movement. Well, that's an interesting phrase, right? We further built our movement. We got more partners on board this time than we had last time, even though we lost. So we kind of won even though we lost, because, again, there's a momentum gathering there. I think there's a there's a trend. There's a, there's a progression or a crescendo coming. And they're able to add to that even when they lose. Um, so that that's the that's what I think we're not seeing uh, quite as well. If all we're doing is kind of watching the hot ag case of the year, I mean, we all go to these continuing legal education legal education programs, and it's like, hey, here's five cases that impacted ag this year. Well, there's another twenty or thirty out there that we've had to pay to defend. There's some nonprofit funding the other side's offense. 
Uh, and just over time, to me, that has that has weight. You know, that eats away at our advantage. Okay, you you mentioned culture a little bit, Ray. Just your thoughts on ESG. I mean, we weren't. I, mean, I wasn't talking about ESG five years ago, but now all of a sudden, it's everywhere. Uh, so, what are your thoughts? You know, your experience in DC and now being home in North Carolina, and just I mean, it's hard to pick up a Wall Street Journal anymore without reading about ESG and other publications. What yeah. are your well, first of all, for anybody that hadn't seen it yesterday, the the November 21st op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on the COP27 movement and, and sort of these ESG-related ESG issues, um, I thought made some good points. And, and to tie that ESG movement to, to your comment about culture, I mean, one of the things that I think we, we see from where we're sitting in ag policy and in this sort of climate and sustainability movement, not all of which is bad, right? I mean, some of this we do need to ask ourselves some tougher questions and, and address in a different way, uh, maybe improve some of what we've got. And, and of course, in, in our defense, that's that's what we're all about, right? We all want to improve it incrementally, but we just don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We certainly don't want to do that when that leaves us with a world that is more food insecure. And so, but, but going back to the parallels, I mean, it's almost like there's a, a religion about this stuff. Right. Like there's it's it's not uh, cultish is too strong of a word. I don't I don't mean to be I don't want to denigrate anyone who holds these beliefs sincerely. But when you see the kind of fever and furor and excitement over this issue, you have to kind of think, well, that that almost seems religious in a way. I mean, it almost seems like it's a it's a faith like thing for for certain people. And, you know, my observation on that which admittedly some may not agree with, is that that is in fact exactly what it is. It is replacing other things. It is replacing, and I say this in the book, the, uh, the old God-shaped hole in your heart. You know, we're all going to put something there. Uh, if, we don't, if we don't have the main thing as the main thing, then we're going to fill it up with something else. And so I think, I think there's a religious piece to it almost uh, that, that relates to the culture piece. Uh, and I think there's a lack of recognition of trade-offs. Right. Like we can do whatever people want us to do with the food system. I mean, if they want to grow food a certain way or have certain lack of inputs or you know, we can do that. Uh, but there's a trade off. I mean, number one, at the end of the day, your food's probably going to be more expensive. I mean, we didn't innovate and do the things we're doing to make production cost more. We're trying to do it to make production cost less. Right. Yes. Uh, so, A, it's going to cost more. <clears throat> which inevitably means there's going to be people that can't afford it. And we're going to price ourselves out of certain markets uh, where our exports in particular are really important to adding to the overall sort of global supply. And so, um, so I think it's here to stay. I mean, I just heard last week here and I don't remember who it was, but, you know, one of these big banker type leader, thought leader type folks saying, well, you know, I mean, it's all about going to net zero, that, that that's where we're headed. So you can either get on the bus or you can get left behind. That that reminds me a little bit of what I used to hear about alternative meat, right? That we're all going to be eating plant-based diets by 2030. That That's not turned out to be the case. I mean, I do think there's market share for that. Uh, but but I don't, I, I just don't see how we can get to net zero. Um, again, not without some major, major trade-offs and not without the folks that want to get us there frankly, having a little more conversations with common folks like us and explaining, you know, this is how we're going to get there and this is why we need to get there. So uh, last thing I would say about ESG, 
I think the folks that are moving in that space, particularly in the investment world, I think they see agriculture as low-hanging fruit. I think they have these misconceptions that ag, to use a realtor example, ag is the bad part of town. And we're going to go over there and we're going to buy one of those cheap houses in the ag world and we're going to fix it up and we're going to make a profit, right? I think that's the same lens through which a lot of the ESG stuff is like, oh, ag. Well, I've heard the McKinsey report that they don't have, they're not very digitized. They don't have their data, you know, as far progressed as other industries. I've always doubted the math in that report. But let's say they're 50% right, right? Let's say they're they're half correct. And we are one of the least digitized or least data heavy industries, and that's going to change. Well, that doesn't mean anything other than we're going to continue to incrementally get better. It doesn't mean that we're the bad part of town. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't already care about sustainability and you know care about protecting the environment and all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't know if that come across clearly. That's another reason I put things in writing in the book. It gives me a chance to lay it out. Uh, better than I could talking, but I think, you know, I, I think if you're a you're a part of the ESG movement and you look at ag and you really don't understand agriculture, but you just think, oh, we got to go fix these guys. That's that's easy. Let's go do some ESG investing in agriculture. I, I think you're going to be surprised uh, where we are. That's a really interesting analogy. I mean, whether it's ESG or just everything happening, you know, again, dovetail that to the climate space. You know, we've been pretty aggressive uh, through a series of commentaries and podcasts of trying to make sure that we're shedding light on the good things that are happening right. in agriculture, the good things that have been happening for actually a long time. That's exactly right. And that's the frustrating part is, is trying to get across everything that happens from a holistic standpoint on our farms every day. People want to that's pinpoint right. and look at one facet of the farm, but not give credit for everything. That's right. That, that and happen. then the the potential for additional burden without additional gain, right? Like uh, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna make you implement a certain practice or a certain way of doing something, but the market really isn't prepared to reward you for that, or any reward that the market gives for that gets sucked off by somebody else. You know, not that that would ever happen in the in the ag supply chain, if you will, or or upstream. And so, um, so so yeah, I mean, all those concerns I think are valid. So as you think about your address, so you're going to be you're going to be featured, Ray, during our Monday morning general session. We'll have the governor and other statewide officials who are addressing our members. But you're really you're the keynote, buddy. Uh, you mentioned trade offs earlier. Clearly, you can't get through all the content. But That's what, right. what are your thoughts, you know, going into having this conversation with, you know, a thousand of your brothers and sisters in agriculture here in, in, a, in the heartland? What's on your mind and heart as you prepare for our meeting? First of all, it's very exciting. Uh, and the worst part of doing something like this is you get completely jazzed and you meet these folks and then you got to get it back in a tin can and fly back across the country. So I, I'd love to stay for the entire convention. And so, A, for folks that are around and would love to talk about this more, uh, we'll have some of that opportunity there that morning. But second, you know, I'm, we can jump on Zoom anytime. And so, again, I think I love the phrase kindred spirits and uh, so hey, just looking forward to it. But I think on the message front, it, it is the, the lead in the idea that we have farmers and we have foodies, that we have insiders in the industry that have actually grown stuff, that actually own and drive tractors, that actually have people at risk. Uh, 
and all the allied industry around them, their lenders, their insurers, you know, their advocacy organizations. You know, we, I call that group that I feel like I'm a member of, I call that the insiders. And then we have the outsiders. And so I'll sort of set that up and I'll make us mad. Like one of the first things I'll do in the first five or 10 minutes is I will tell you things that people have said about the food system that will make you upset. Now, I'm not doing that just to make you upset. I'm doing it to set the table that here are what some really smart people think about agriculture. And that tees up that big question. So how did this happen? But before I get into that, how this how does this happen? And of course, what do we do about it? I, I think I've got to acknowledge that's typically where we stop. I mean, typically we point at that group of people and say, well, they're nuts and that's insulting and they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, we need to have a communications campaign. We need to tweet. You know, we need to put some videos on, on uh, YouTube. I uh, need to have a farm city week. Uh, have, you know, a, a, a turkey shoot and and we're done, you know, wipe our hands and move on to the next thing. And kind of my point is that's I don't think in the modern era that's going to be enough. I think we've got to meet these criticisms where they are in the channels where they are playing. So in the investment world, in the political world, in the international pressure world, um, you know, one of the things about the trade strategy in the United States, I mean, you, you have to be out there playing and building coalitions, whether you like that or not, because otherwise you're leaving the field uncontested for bad ideas. Uh, so, so as much as I believe in, hey, America's got to chart its own course here, you, you still got to play in those other places. So in, in the investment world, in the political world, in the international world, in the media world, and certainly in the legal world, what are we going to do to actually push back against this criticism that's coming through those channels and, and that, in my view, is, is slowly gaining the upper hand? And so I'll talk at the, a little bit at the end about some proposals and some solutions. And admittedly, I think Farm Bureau is a big part of that. Uh, I don't think it can be the only part. Uh, and I'll explain why. But I, I think, you know, I, I, what I hope is that I don't just rile people up and frustrate them. And we all say, yeah, rah, 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 they don't know what they're talking about. Go ag. I actually want to be constructive. Uh, and I love farm credit. I've got a brother that works with them, but I kind of make the joke that, you know, we all get revved up and we say we're better than them. And we give away a few farm credit hats and then we go home. And that strategy is not going to work. We've got to be more strategic. Than that. Well, I'm glad I'm going to have my annual address out of the way before you speak. <laughs> that well, I look forward to that. That's fine. <laughs> I, I can I, feel the pressure. Um, you're, you're, you're awfully uh, humble. I, I, I will tell you, the, of the two of us that will feel pressure that Monday morning, it will be me, not you. So uh, <laughs> you've been awfully kind to talk about my FFA days and all, but uh, but, you, but you're no slouch yourself. So uh, don't no. don't pull off that all shucks Missouri farm boy joke <laughs> with me. I, I know <laughs> well, you know, again, I think your message is going to be spot on as we prepare to to truly do the work of our organization that afternoon. Sure. You know, Farm Bureau is grassroots to the core. And just like you've seen with North Carolina Farm Bureau, you know, here in Missouri, we'll have over 700 farmer and rancher voting delegates that are debating, amending, and ultimately setting policy to guide us into 2023. And it really is awesome to see. I think your message is going to be great from setting the tone uh, of some of the challenges that you see from a big picture standpoint. Um, 
truly, it, it's going to be an awesome annual meeting. Just so you know, both of us are going to be competing uh, media-wise uh, with our first ever Missouri Farm Bureau Farm Dog of the Year. That oh, wow. We won't hold a candle. We we will not. So, I mean, I'm just preparing you. That actually takes pressure off. Uh, there. <laughs> the only way we could do that better, Garrett, is if you and I brought, you know, a, a Missouri Farm pig uh, and, and had a pet pig that we had on a leash or something. That, that would not be able to. Be, that would be newsworthy. Brownfield would definitely carry that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. Well, any any other thoughts, Ray? Um, no, I honestly and, and genuinely excited to come. Uh, I do think you know we can talk at some point about the the sort of federal policy atmosphere and all that's going on there. And you know, one of the things I would add is at this time of year, in particular, in a year prior to the farm bill, we have a tendency to to talk a lot about the farm bill. Like that's the only piece of ag legislation at the federal level that we care deeply about. And when I think about the pressure and the risks in the ag sector, to me, they cannot be fixed in the farm bill. When I think about technology and innovation and how the regulatory system is completely outdated for it, that's not a farm bill fix. When I think about our labor challenges, we can't fix that in the farm bill. Um, when I think about trade, I mean, that's typically not a, not necessarily a farm bill uh, issue. When I think about the Endangered Species Act and how we deploy new, safer herbicides and pesticides, it's not a farm bill thing. So uh, I think it's easy to get, you know, microcosmed in, if you will, over on, on the farm bill topic. But man, we've got to play in these other spaces. And unfortunately, those spaces are where I think the foodies uh, are going to have the upper hand if we don't get busy. So. Looking forward to sharing that message, being with you all. Wish I could be there even more. I could not agree with you more, Ray, about the year ahead and the challenges. It's going to be a lot of fun. Look forward to welcoming you to, to Margaritaville and to Osage Beach. It'll be a great time. I'm glad that we can tout. I can't wait to, to um, tout to Sean Harding there in North Carolina that uh, we were the first stop in your uh, official book tour. So very excited to be able to tell Sean that when we're together in D.C. Yeah, please do rub that in a little bit. You know, <laughs> telling if they were to call, I might be like, I'm sorry, I've kind of gotten busy. I can't work you guys in. Uh, uh, I tell you, trust just, me, they've heard some iterations of this as it was underway. I mean, one of the things I did to hold myself accountable was I told people I was writing a book. And so I knew, well, gosh, I better get it finished or people are going to be like, whatever happened to that book you said you were writing? So, uh, so they, they've heard some preliminary uh, thoughts on it, but uh, but that's great for you to mention. And and I mean it about Dr. Stewart. I'm, I'm bringing him back when I, when I leave. <laughs> All right. Good luck. Well, again, Ray Starling, folks. Uh, Ray, thank you for joining us on Digging In, our podcast. Look forward to digging in with you in person at annual meeting as you join us for the general session Monday morning as we celebrate Missouri Farm Bureau being rooted in service uh, as we uh, carry out the 108th annual meeting of Missouri Farm Bureau. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch up with you again soon. Take care. Thanks, Garrett.